A few weeks ago, I was making my daily prospecting calls. I'd almost received my quota of rejections for the day when I happened to call a company called Coolia.ma, a marketing automation tool for marketing agencies. The founder, Andrew Nicholson, answered the phone. He told me that they'd created a tool that's every bit as powerful as their other enterprise offering and competing automation platforms, but designed for agencies that have neither the resources nor the multi-million pound budgets of their larger competitors. I asked him to prove it, and he's given me a year's worth of Coolia for free. So I'll be using the tool, giving you my honest feedback for the next few weeks, to see if the tool is as good as Andrew and the guys at Coolia say it is. Find out more at coolia.ma. My extra special guest this week is Juliana Richter, a partner at Waypoint Partners, a leading growth and M&A advisory firm in the UK and US. She has spent the last 18 years in senior and agency leadership roles at Edelman, the world's largest independent communications firm, where she served as chief operating officer of the largest region with 2,700 employees and revenue close to $500 million. She has an interesting perspective on company growth. It's not just about the size of your bank balance or your employee headcount. She talks about the importance of growing your culture, talent and products and services as a key indicator of growth. We talked about uh, what leaders are really concerning themselves with when it comes to automation, AI. You know, Do they build their own? Do they buy? Do they partner with experts in those areas? If you are remotely interested in agency growth, technology, leadership, and diversity and inclusion, she's got some really fascinating career advice for women and minorities on how they can reach the highest um, levels of senior leadership. I found the conversation fascinating. I think you will also. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Juliana Richter. Juliana Richter is an expert in strategic communications, operational effectiveness, business growth expansion and integration, client service excellence and change management. Given her roles at Edelman during its tremendous growth over the years, she knows what it takes to grow and scale a business and the different phases a company goes through during that growth and expansion. She now brings her experience and expertise to businesses of all sizes who are looking to strategically grow and scale. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Juliana Richter, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Wonderful. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, your history is quite a fascinating one. You, you started your career working at small communications firms, uh, and then you became a consultant at AstraZeneca before spending sort of 18 years at Edelman, holding various leadership roles throughout the years. You don't tend to see that level of commitment, 18 years I'm referring to, uh, with people in companies these days, do you? You don't. And, and clearly I have a problem with commitment, as you can tell. <laughs> um, but you don't. That's very true. I think especially in the agency side and, and the consultancy side, people do tend to maybe spend, a, you know, a set amount of years and they jump on to something else. Hmm. I think it's quite rare that you're going to see somebody, you know, spend 18, 20, 25 years mm. in one firm, especially in this day and age. What was it, what was it about Edelman that kept you engaged for such a long period of time? 
I think really at the end of the day, it came down to just the opportunities that were there. And I do believe a lot of people, when they are staying at a company for that long, it's almost like they've been at four or five different companies. That company just has the same name um, on, on the door. And that was certainly the case at Edelman. When I first joined, it was less than $100 million in revenue worldwide. Um, it's now closing in on closer to a billion. So that just gives you a sense of, of the growth um, over the years. And with that, again, opportunity arises to do different things. And I think companies that take advantage of that are able to retain really top tier talent. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Because as you said, during your time with Edelman, you saw the company grow from close to 100 million to almost a billion dollars globally now. Describe what it was like working in a company that was going through that much growth and, and change. It's exciting. It's exhilarating, mm. it's maddening, uh, and sometimes it's even terrifying. And I think probably anyone who's seen any kind of, any kind of organization go through that level of growth would be able to relate to that. But I, I kind of liken it to a child. You know, when you're starting out, right, it's, it's smaller, it's a toddler, they're mm. learning, they're mm. figuring things out, they're bumping into things, um, but they're kind of fearless also at the same time, and they don't know what they can't do. And I think that that's very much was my experience and mm. probably others in the early stages. And then you kind of grow into more of that adolescent phase mm -hmm. where you're a little bit more aware of your surroundings. But you're also rebellious. You're also rebellious. Right. Um, some some companies, you know, might even in a in a good way, you know, take those chances that probably later in life they, they wouldn't. Mm. Um, but it's, it's really an interesting time. And I think that there's so much energy that can be harnessed in those early years. It's when it becomes more of that adolescent stage, kind of, mm. you know, early adulthood. I think that's where things, you know, can go in one or two directions. Mm. But it was exhilarating. And I, and I was so happy to be a part of that. So exhilarating, exciting, a little bit scary, sometimes all on the same day or during oh, the same week. Oh, same hour. Same hour. The same the same meeting. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. So so let, let's drill into that in a bit more detail then, because most of us will actually never work for a company of that size in our in our lifetimes. Describe what systems and processes and culture that that needs to be in place in order to grow and lead a company of that sure. size. Yeah, it's, I, I love that question, Nathan, because I, I think what a company in a smaller stage of growth needs is not always what they need um, down the road. And so systems or processes, just as an example, you, you can really use a light touch in the early days. You have fewer people. Um, very often, if it's a founder CEO organization, the systems revolve around whatever that founders put into place mm -hmm. and, and the very small team around them. As the company, though, evolves, and this, I think, goes for any company, especially the ones I've been working with, you do need a little bit more rigor and consistency. And interestingly, that's not always for the CEO or the founder. It's actually, I think, more often for those around the CEO and certainly clients because they're looking for a certain level of consistency. So as that company is growing up, you need to really start to take the essence of what was so unique, special, and entrepreneurial, and maybe codify that in a way that the company hadn't done in the early days. Hmm. I think talent would probably fall into a similar category there. The people that are attracted to a startup 
are not always necessarily the same people who would want to be at a you know sure. a larger organization. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. It's just the reality of, of a skill set and a way of working. And so I think evaluating the talent as that company is growing as well is, mm-hmm. is very important. Mm-hmm. And then the last area I would just mention quickly, roles and responsibilities, which is so overlooked, you know, very often because you're running at such a, a high speed and trying to do so many things. But as that company is building and evolving, you really need to take a moment to look at the roles and the responsibilities because what worked yesterday may not work tomorrow. And it's important to get ahead of that. Hmm. It's really interesting sort of when in the company's evolution, should they make a change to their employees and, and leadership team to almost bringing quite sen- more senior level managers? Because we've, we've seen with Uber in the last, you know, the, yes. you know, the, the fallout recently that, um, you know, the founder or the or the people involved in the early stage of the business may not be the best people to take the business on long term. Uh, and obviously, you know, from a cultural perspective, the culture that Travis Kalanick in, uh, sort of implemented probably wasn't the best one to continue the growth of a global business, as, as essentially. Right. At what point in an agent in, in a in a organization's growth should they start evaluating? Okay, should we start bringing in more senior level sort of leaders and decision makers here to help us on our on our growth journey? What's the point? I don't. Yeah, I don't. Th- there's not a magical number. I wish there was. I wish there was a. You've hit this revenue, or you've gone through this seed round. I don't think it is always necessarily that. I think it's more in terms of the complexity of the service that you're offering and the size of the clients or the customers that you have. I think those are kind of the tipping point moments where, when you start to really do need a repeatable process, that's that's an indicator that you're at a point where you need to evaluate your systems. And so there's one company I I just was with very recently, smaller size, moving into mid-size firm. And in speaking with the founder, the founder said, and I loved it, the founder said, I, my job was to come up with the idea and set the strategy and vision and then hire the best people and get out of their way. And I'm, I know that's not the only person who's said that, but I, I love the sentiment behind that because his view is he knows he had the idea and he's bringing that to fruition through hiring the right people and letting them actually do the jobs that they're, they're hired to do. And I think that's a really big challenge, especially for a founder. It's their baby. And so how do you know those moments in time? I think having an outside perspective very often is the easiest way to do that because somebody can come in and say, I can see things that you can't see from the inside. Yeah, definitely. I guess it requires a level of humility and I guess it requires a level of self-awareness to be able to understand where you're weak, where the people are strong, where you can bring in other senior leaders yeah. to help you where you're where you're weak essentially so that so that they can help you with your baby's Indeed. growth. Indeed. Um so so let's expand on that a little bit more. So you, you you've got both agency and client side experience. As you said, you were responsible for growing Edelman's global client portfolio, which eventually accounted for thirty five percent of the firm's mm-hmm. revenue, which is a significant portfolio and significant responsibility. Talk a little bit about your approach to actually helping those sorts of clients grow. What was your approach? Sure. Um, and actually, you know, full credit again to the entrepreneurial spirit of Edelman. 
when we started that function or that group, we didn't really have a, a set approach to managing a client portfolio per se, um, and certainly not at a global level. And I, I believe most companies would have fallen into that uh, at that you know day in 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 the um, in the world of agency life. And so, what we did is we thought let's identify a group of clients first that we actually had in multiple parts of our organization. And many of those companies didn't even know they were working with us, maybe in New York and in Shanghai and in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, we actually knew more about that than they did. And hmm. so the first part was to just almost take a full, you know, um, holistic approach to each individual client so that we're offering them more value. But the second piece I actually think is almost more interesting, which is there was such a need and desire amongst clients to learn from other companies and not necessarily companies in their industry. So a pharma company would be really intrigued to know what a CPG company hmm. was doing because at the end of the day, they had a lot of the same challenges, right? Hmm. So taking and harnessing those learnings and synthesizing them in a way and then redistributing those back to the companies writ large, that became its own value proposition huh. that was al allowing us to give them something they weren't necessarily getting or even paying for in some cases hmm. and to organically help them grow and in turn our business. So it was a strategic pivot moment that the firm was making because they were growing in a different direction that was able to allow them to continue to grow and diversify the services with the client base they had. Hmm. You, you you have a unique perspective on growing growing businesses, specifically the pains and challenges of agencies at different yep. stages of, of their growth, small, medium and, and large agencies. What are the main markers of growth and, and what do agencies tend to struggle at at each stage of, of growth? So I think it depends on the size, right? Um, again, so a small agency, their their challenges are going to be around scale mm -hmm. immediately. How are they going to scale fairly quickly to take advantage of the market opportunity? They're likely going to have a small team in place and they're scrappy. That's what got them there probably mm -hmm. in the first place. How are they going to scale? That is the number one you know, question that they have. I think a mid-size they now have a larger base, both in terms of probably talent um, and also on a client or customer side. So their biggest question is going to be, how do they expand? So is it a market expansion, which a lot of companies choose to do? Is mm. it a, um, a offering product or the capability? Yeah. Or, right, are they going to move from product to services mm. or, or do both, right? But expansion is their big question. And with that, and this is where I think a lot of them fall into some challenge area, with that, it becomes what are the repeatable processes that mm. they need to allow allow them to do that and still service, right, in the way that they might have done in the early days. But expansion is their their biggest need. And then I think, you know, once you're of size and scale, it, it's, it almost in some ways comes full circle because mm. a lot of the big companies, and this is for probably any industry, mm. how do they make sure that they're keeping that entrepreneurial spirit mm. and the innovation that the other younger and mm. smaller companies have? Sure. Um, how can they be agile? How can they be nimble? And how can they go to market with speed? So they do really have a lot of different challenges based on where they are in their growth trajectory. Mm. How did Edelman deal with that, you know, from the perspective of, 
you need to be quite innovative to to deal with the or, or or confront the challenges of sort of younger upstarts that have maybe fresher perspectives and they're able that are nim- more nimble and are able to sort of um that are more disruptive um generally how most companies of that size from what i hear have a sort of an innovation room or an incubator mm, somewhere right. off in the, in the basement <laughs> right exactly how how did how did edelman deal with the innovation and keeping quite nimble i, I think um it's a great question i think I think Edelman tended to, especially in those days, they tended to attract very entrepreneurial leaders. Mm. And that, it, because there was no roadmap, right? And so people who thrived in, in those days were the people who actually wanted to create a roadmap or, you know, figure it out as they were, um, as they were going. And so when a company is able to attract that type of talent, then those people are going to keep that entrepreneurial sense about them in their individual teams. Because if you think about it, a a client or a company uh, of any scale, you know, it's thousands of people, either 1,000 or Mm 10,000. It really comes down to the teams that you're working within, right, day to day. And if that entrepreneurial spirit isn't embedded deeply in that team, Mm -hmm. then you're not encouraged to try and pilot and experiment and do the things in your day to day that you should be. So I I think Edelman was really smart um, in the early days to kind of really look at that as a competitive advantage. And I think the companies now that we're seeing thriving, those companies understand the importance of experimentation and innovation very much down in the roots of the organization, not just in a really nice conference room with a lot of, you know, squeeze toys on the table. Hmm. So you mentioned that smaller agencies are dealing with the challenges of scaling and scaling quickly. Mid-sized agencies are looking at sort of market expansion, whether that be service or product expansion. And you say that, you know, if you're not growing, you're declining. But do we always have to grow? Um, Bob Berg wrote a fantastic book called Small Giants, where he argues that companies don't have to be big to be great. Can we still be great, but still be small? I think it depends on how you interpret growth. Hmm. So I think a lot of a lot of people and a lot of owners and founders immediately and certainly investors think of growth uh, first and foremost, financial growth. And that is definitely an important dimension of growth. But I also look at growth in a broader sense in terms of the culture of the organization, the talent of the organization and the offerings and services that you're you're bringing to your customer or your clients. So if those are growing and, and those are being tended to in the same way with attention and care that the numbers are being attended to, I think then the organization is growing and evolving and the money follows that. And where I've seen companies of scale maybe falter a little bit or and and certainly you know recalibrate or need to is when they're really laser focused on growth as a financial metric not the the whole holistic view of growth so that's that's the way i view growth but i do think in this day and age if you're not growing in in some capacity and again, that comes down to all the dimensions I mentioned. There is a there's definitely a danger there for the longevity of the company. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Waypoint Partners. You yep. joined the firm this year. Tell us yep. a little bit about your role with the company and 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 why you joined. 
So um, Waypoint Partners, which you might know, given your accent, uh, actually originated in the UK mm -hmm. about three and a half years ago. And I was brought on in the US to help expand the US operation here because frankly, we were seeing so much opportunity, um, first starting from a lot of the clients based out of the UK who are looking to move into the US or, and do business in the US, and then equally companies who are based here of all sizes. So mm -hmm. uh, that was really the impetus for, for me joining. And when I was looking at what I wanted to do next, I, you know, like many people did the exercise of what do I love? What gets me excited? Mm -hmm. What am I passionate about? And the thing I've always had, the kind of red thread in, in my background has always been growth, whether that was as a chief operating officer or a counselor to a, a massive client or running a group. It was always about growth in the, in the dimensions that I just mentioned. And so I really wanted to be able to continue that. And Waypoint allows me to work with companies that are going through a lot of those growing pains that I was mentioning earlier and use my background and expertise to help them understand how they can work through those mm -hmm. to attain that next level of what they're looking for. In preparation for this interview, I, I saw a video where you said that there's tremendous disruption taking place across mm -hmm. the creative marketing and digital space at the moment, creating new types of challenges and opportunities across the ecosystem. So what disruption are you referring to here specifically? And what are the best agencies doing to take advantage of that disruption? I, so I think there's, we could go on probably for another hour on just <laughs> disruption. So I'll, I'll, I'll do the next show on that. Sure. Um, I think right now it's, it's an exciting time and it's an extremely challenging time. We, we just brought together about 15 um, founders and CEOs a week ago for a dinner in New York. And the, the entire discussion was around the disruption happening and the impact on their business and, and where they're going to be focused. And I'll tell you, you know, more probably interesting from their perspective, which mirrors mine, is very much around disruption as it relates to new technologies mm -hmm. that are uh, not only impacting them as a company, but certainly their clients. And by virtue of that, the budgets that their mm -hmm. clients are putting forward um, and the comfort level. So we talked quite a bit around a couple of key areas, first being um, automation, which mm -hmm. I think is on everyone's mind. And uh, certainly in the marketing services, creative space, there's a lot of question of how to best uh, harness and leverage that and and bring that to bear. Uh, I think AI mm -hmm. would fall very much, you know, squarely into that same kind of top tier area. And a lot of companies are doing interesting things around, do they hire and build that or do they buy that or do they network and partner? Hmm. Um, but they know that they need to incorporate that a little bit more meaningfully than maybe in the past. Um, and then I think just how do you look at the new technologies that are being brought to bear that maybe new entrants are, are really taking advantage of. You can't talk about any of this without talking about Amazon. You can't talk about any of this and the, and the domination um, of Amazon and e-commerce and what that means, even down to a health product. Um, so it's a really interesting time. And I think the group that we were with last week 
said, you know, outright, they wouldn't have even thought three years ago that that would have been the discussion that, mm. you know, if you brought that type of group together, mm. they'd be focused on. But yet there we were. And so I think those are a lot of what's weighing on people's minds right now. Really interesting. Amazon casts a shadow in all directions. And that kind of doesn't really make sense as a metaphor, but but you kind of know what I mean. They, they, I they're, do. they're everywhere. Literally then, everywhere. They're, I'm sure they're listening to this conversation. <laughs> I'm sure they. Well, my Alexa is on, Alexa. you know, so they should definitely <laughs> listening. I think Jeff Bezos is particularly paying attention right now. Yeah. Um, they've they've launched a health product as well. I mean, you mentioned health. Yeah. They've recently, yeah. they've, they, you know, they're they're making strides in, in into that, which is which is fascinating. Um, so so talk about let's talk about sort of increasing complexity within agencies um, and how agencies can sort of get to grips with that within their business because you talk a lot about you know the importance of agency g getting to grips with the complexity within their service offering and because when it was just the founder and an assistant they had a plan mm -hmm. on a on a back of a napkin or or what have you maybe <laughs> <laughs> maybe if there was a plan right um and that relationship was hard enough just having two people but then you add a third person into the mix a customer a location a new product and the degree of complexity triples from two to six and add a fourth and it quadruples to 24. so going from three to four people might increase complexity 400 percent. some people have said right uh, how do the best agencies deal with increasing complexity some of them don't deal. Um, it, 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 just to be very direct, I, I think until they have to deal, right? right? So um, a big learning that I've seen and, and the best firms out there are getting ahead of that. And they're thinking ahead and planning for areas of complexity. So I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the systems and the processes that you need, um, certainly the roles and the responsibilities. One area where I've seen a lot of companies fall into complexity challenges is actually around decision making. And while that sounds like it would be so intuitive, and it usually is when a company is very small, it becomes really, really challenging when a company is of scale. It's unclear how and who gets to make a decision. And if you lose time on that or if there is a disconnect on that, there's really not only an impact on the bottom line, there's an impact on morale, there's an impact on retention, um, there's uh, certainly on the, you know, the service of the uh, and delivery. So I think decision making is a really important area to look at as you're looking at the complexity of the business. But then equally, if you're able to get those pieces right and you're planning ahead, most companies, as they're growing, are also growing, again, maybe their services. So they might have products and they're adding service to those products or they're adding in different types of capability that they've never had before. And that's another big watch out area because you can be amazing. You can be a firm that's a creative firm doing beautiful, creative, really clever, um, beautiful you know, expression of mm -hmm. that creative. But if now you're asking the same team to also be building in the analytics and the measurements and, mm. you know, the the social aspect, and that's really not the, the their core of what they do, mm -hmm. the complexity of the new expertise and skill sets that sure. you need to be bringing in 
can, if not planned for, can be incredibly distracting. Mm -hmm. And so that at the end of the day, all of these things matter because it's taking the team's focus away from growing the business, working on the clients um, and, you know, doing things to advance. And so there's a lot of dimensions to complexity, but those are some of the key areas I think that Mm. agencies and companies need to watch out for and proactively Mm. plan for. Mm. Because things will get increasingly complex if you if you let it if you want to add new service offerings or new product offerings because you see a a new shiny opportunity in the marketplace. But by increasing that complexity, you then you you increase, um, I guess, you increase the strain of the business, especially if you don't have the resources and talent in place to support that. Just going back to, so, so just, just relating to that then, what I hear you saying is, is the importance of sort of focus, whether that's a focus on a particular skill set or vertical or product or, or service area, you know, regardless of what else is happening in the marketplace, um, how important is it for agencies to specialize and to focus um, and to, you know, regardless of, what else is sort of new and shiny out there, almost keeping the blinkers on, putting their head down and sort of plowing on in a direction that is a core capability or, or a capability that they can excel at and own. Yeah, can you can you talk about that a little bit? So I liken it to, we all have a style, hmm. right? We all you know tend to gravitate towards a style and a style that looks good and feels good on us. But every once in a while, we want, might want to get dressed up or try a new trend. Mm-hmm. You got to know what your style is, right? You need to understand what is the core essence of the business and the value that your business is providing and build out around that. But you don't want to go so far away that it doesn't make sense for mm. the the buyer, right? The the client at the end of the day who's purchasing your services. And so I, I do think a lot of companies might look at what are the trends, what are you know other agencies, where's the growth coming mm. from, and then say, great, let's bring that in or even you know offer that without the right talent and expertise. And they can fall into, you know, a, a challenging area because at the end of the day, the company or the clients they're working with might not actually want that as a service hmm. or they might not want to buy it from them. And so knowing what your core is and then building out from around that in an adjacency that makes sense hmm. to the core of your business, that's that's the most important thing. And it's very tempting to want to put on that completely different trendy outfit, but it might not be what is really best suited for you and where you want to be. Makes sense. I, I want to go back to what you said earlier about the roundtable um, where you, you all sort of discussed the technologies that were uh, that were having a, a, an impact on sort of the future of, of, of their businesses. They talked about sort of automation, AI, Amazon, etc. I'm going to throw sort of blockchain into that um, as well as many people sort of dis- discuss it. Um, was Was culture ever sort of mentioned as and when I say culture I mean sort of keeping an eye on the the way that sort of society Mm -hmm. and and and, and cultural norms change and flex over time and how companies almost have to adapt to that was that ever mentioned because it seems as though there was there's an a focus on technology and how Mm -hmm. technology is changing us but was there also a focus on sort of how society is changing and how people are changing 
Absolutely. I think that there's a real need and focus for companies, especially the leading companies, to be in a position where they are taking care of their their not only client needs, but also their um, talent and their employee needs in terms of what they're asking the company to do. And so a big part of our discussion was revolving around the expectation as it relates to companies taking a stand hmm. um, on a particular issue or perhaps not taking a, on a particular client if hmm. that client represents something. And we've all seen some of that in the news and the, you know, not to um, distant future. And mm -hmm. so all of these relating back to the culture of the company and the societal expectations what uh, of what employees and companies or clients are really now expecting from anybody, including their agency partner. That was a big part of our discussion. And mm -hmm. I think when you look at just the, you know, the, the generational, um, you know, uh, situation now with the younger uh, generation being the future workforce and the current workforce in a lot of cases, that is not the same need set and, and cultural expectation set that, you know, maybe somebody in their 30s or 40s mm. um, might have had. And so if there is a choice given between I want to work for a company that stands for something and is helping advance the greater good of society versus I want to work for a company that isn't but might pay me a little bit more. <laughs> They're going to go for the first one. And, and so how do you really grapple with that as a business leader? And that was definitely a big part of our discussion. Hmm, quite, quite fascinating. So as we said at the top of the show, you've held multiple leadership roles with Edelman. Um, how have you changed and grown as a leader over the last 18, 20 years or so? Oh, my. How have I changed? Well, I wear glasses now, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's one. Um, that means you've read a I lot. Think... <laughs> True. Or the little screens. Um, I think the the probably the biggest area of growth, um, and maybe others can relate to this. You know, when you're starting in your career, it's it is very much about me. It's right. It's about I want to prove myself, and I'm I'm going to take on you know the world, and I'm going to try different things, and it's a very me centric um, experience. And certainly that was the case, you know, for me, literally for me. And I think what, if I had to kind of say what's changed is from me to we. And I realized over years, not only is the thinking and the work product and the satisfaction greater when it's a collaborative effort and, and a we effort, um, but it's also just more gratifying personally, mm -hmm. um, you know, and professionally. And so being able to kind of shift from that, I'm going to do it myself to, no, let's pick the right group and we'll do it together. I, I think that's a really important shift and one that um, I'm very grateful that I was able to kind of spot, you know, halfway through and, and really now inculcate, I think, in, in others that I work with. Huh. Let's talk a little bit about diversity and, in, and inclusion. Yeah. Um, women and minorities face unique challenges, especially at senior levels within in, in leadership roles. And even though things are changing and things have improved slightly in recent a years. Bit. A little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Many people still feel as though change is happening. It's not happening fast enough. Yeah. What can we do to make leadership at the highest levels more representative of society? So 
first, I think it's it's acknowledging um, and and calling it out, right? And so I've been in meetings where most of the people sitting around the table look exactly the same, hmm. and in, in every way, in gender, in age, in ethnicity. Hmm. And so to say, you know, maybe we need another perspective, given mm. that we're talking about, you know, topic A. Sure. Um, so I think even articulating and, and calling that out verbally, I think, um, is really important because very often people just don't even stop to think about that. Mm. Um, then I think it's, it's, you know, it's the old saying, right? People do what they're measured, uh, you know, for doing. And so if a company or a leader is going to actually put, you know, a definitive goal. And that goal could be a percentage, that goal could be an actual number, that goal could be something else, but it's got to be concrete so that you can measure against it. Mm -hmm. And that individual or team is measured on a regular basis, that affects change. Because now there's a real focus and it's black and white, you can see, are they moving and advancing the ball? Are they, you know, are they not? Um, so those are just, you know, two things I think that are really important to do. But I think on the individually, what we can all be doing is also figuring out what's our voice. I, I've seen this. I've struggled with it. And I've seen many other women and um, people of color and younger people, uh, you know, struggling with how do they find their voice when, again, maybe the people around that table don't necessarily look like them or have their background and experience. And that's a very important approach to take because that's a way of having that confidence, being able to contribute, being able to have a different opinion mm. and share that. So those are just some of the areas that I think are really important and sometimes overlooked. So so define what you mean when you say find your voice. Do you, do you mean the ability to sort of speak up in those situations where you're potentially sort of a minority? What, what, yeah. do you mean, what do you mean by that? I, I think it can be speak up and also how are you comfortable speaking up? So hmm. there's a woman I worked with um, who is probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with in my entire career and painfully shy and introverted. And her comfort in speaking literally in a group setting, it, w- it was it was almost paralyzing to her. So I suggested that she do what she does amazingly well and and naturally, which is write. Hmm. So her comfort level of her voice was through writing a really thoughtful email, memo, document, you name it, Hmm. usually not a slide deck, that that put forward a different point of view. And that was her comfort of how she shared her voice. Um, And I don't know that she ever probably would be that comfortable doing that sitting around a boardroom Hmm. um, necessarily. So you can find your voice in that regard. You can also find your voice in terms of, are you asking or are you encouraging or are you telling? There's a lot of, you know, I think traps people fall into where they'll pose something as a question and permission versus trying something and maybe asking for permission after. And Mm. that's a different way of finding your voice. But I think all of these are really important because if we're waiting for maybe the majority to say, okay, everyone come into the, the table now. No, we'll be waiting a much longer time right. than we are. So these are just little ways, I think, 
um, that hmm. people and myself included have found to help advance the, the greater cause. So, so just on that then, you advise women to ask for and seize opportunities wherever they can find them. Absolutely. Find the roles, um, you know, find the roles that might not be claimed by anyone or people don't necessarily want and kill them. That's e- exactly right. Explain that. That has been my career success um, story, probably a huh. strategy. Um, really? I think when you can spot a need, and it has to align to the business, right. of course. I think that goes without saying. But if you can spot a need and you can help fill that, both in terms of a strategic approach and then all the way through to the execution, the killing it part, mm-hmm. nobody else wants to necessarily you know, get involved. It might be a little bit risky. It might be very complicated. If you're able to do that or be a part of a team that's doing that, you're able to show value in a different kind of way. Mm. And so when I talk to, I I mentor a lot of people and when I talk to them, it's usually about finding those opportunities where you're going to be able to not only stretch yourself, but show other people what you can do. And I wrote about this a couple of years ago um, and I call it LEAP, L-E-A-P, and it, it essentially stands for Find the opportunities where you can learn, you can apply, you can, sorry, you can learn, you can experience, you can apply, and then you can progress. Mm -hmm. And if you use that as a kind of, you know, filter, that helps you spot those opportunities that will get you a greater audience and more experience along the way. And I think those are there. You have to be looking for them. They will not always be handed mm, to you. Interesting. So find the opportunity that's possibly overlooked or that people don't necessarily want, but it has to align with the wider business objective. With the business need, yes. Right. Okay. But I, I guess for the pushback from that potentially for younger people or, or, or um, marginalized groups might be, well, you know, I don't want to do that. It's, it's, un, it's not glamorous. It's not sexy. But you say seize the opportunity anyway and sort of execute. And that's how you stand out. I think I think in business, anything can be made sexy if mm. it is helping advance the business needs, if it's making something more efficient, if it is bringing in new clients, if it is a new line of you know business that will open up a, a whole different avenue for down the road revenue, um, if it's thought leadership, even if it's on something pretty small. These are all ways that I think you can tie it back to the greater good of the business. So it's, a, it's about spotting those. And again, when it's not necessarily something that anybody else is touching or doing. Those are the ones I've, I've always looked for and I've encouraged others to as well. Hmm. well. One of the most powerful arguments that I've heard for DNI is, is that it changes the sorts of questions that are even asked in the boardroom, as you mentioned. So several studies have found that, you know, when you've got a, a more diverse group approaching yeah. a challenge, they tend to ask different questions, which in, in, in return results in different outcomes. What's your experience of that? You know, the whole sort of, you know, reducing um, groupthink and sort of unconscious bias and all all of that sort of stuff. What's your experience there? I think that's absolutely right. I think if you don't have a diverse group of background, experience, thought, of course, Mm -hmm. but I almost feel like thought, diversity of thought is table stakes. (laughs) It's truly about what's your experience? 
if you don't have that and that then bleeds into the thinking and the line of questions that will come through, then you have a group of people who are talking to each other about very much a microcosm of the world mm -hmm. that they know and live in. Mm -hmm. And so it, I really do believe that it's it's become important to understand the mix at the table, the proverbial table, but even down to you know the mix of the team. And I'll, just as an example, um, we had a client that we put together a you know a really capable, smart team for with all the right on paper. It, that was the perfect team. When you brought that group together, they all looked like they mm. had the same experience and background, sure. and the client. The client called that out. The client said, I actually want to make sure that we're bringing in different perspectives. So that's happening more frequently. And I think leaders across organizations are spotting that and saying we need to have people from a different background, a different education, mm. a different you know, skill set. Those are really important. And when you're not seeing that really conscious, I think it's it's incumbent on the leaders and the employees to be asking mm. why not. It's interesting because the challenge there is then you, you have to change your entry criteria because at the moment, I would guess, the entry criteria is based on university, academic performance, um, you, you know, sort of it, it's very academically led as to who gets in and who who doesn't at the sort of entry level um, point of view. And I guess that goes back to my whole point of the pipeline. You can't really get senior leadership, uh, people mm -hmm. in senior leadership positions if they don't start in the organization. There isn't, there isn't the pipeline. But that comes back to the hiring criteria, because if you're looking at Ivy League universities or, you know, a certain GPA or a certain sort of um, degree level, then that would that sort of that automatically reduces your pool of people that you can right. attract. So potentially the entry criteria is something that needs to sort of be ad ad addressed. And as you said, especially in our creative industry, uh, the agency world, you know, we may not need people from the best universities in, in the world to to come and work for our agencies. You know, people with div from diverse backgrounds and different backgrounds could be equally as valuable to us. I I couldn't agree more. I think that is changing. Uh, certainly in the states, I, I've seen evidence of that changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. Down to really even directing recruitment and asking them to, or challenging them in some cases to look much wider, cast mm -hmm. the net much wider than you know maybe that usual um, group uh, or pool of of um, universities that they mm -hmm. would normally go to. Not every company is doing that, but I think a lot of companies are starting to go down that road. And one thing that I very much believe in um, and and put in place is a panel, you know, approach to interviewing, so that it's not three people who are all of, again of the same probably gender right. and you know age bracket looking at a candidate. Mm. It's people from all across the organization that are able to ask different questions. Mm -hmm literally specific questions that they are asked or assigned to ask mm -hmm. so that you're getting a well-rounded view of any candidate, not just looking at what school did they go to or mm. what accent do they have mm. or what neighborhood did they come from? So mm. those are really important. And I think that's just going to become even more important as we go. Makes sense. Final question before we get into everyone's favorite questions towards the back end of the interview. Wait, these aren't the favorite questions? These aren't the favorite <laughs> questions. Hold on for the favorite ones. Okay, all right, I'm ready. <laughs> even better. Um, 
Um, but just before we get into that, what have you seen from 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 a client perspective? What changes have you seen in what clients now expect from their agencies recent recently? Is is there a oh, shift in? Yeah, yeah. It's such a great question. Um, I think that it's no longer about the name on the door. Um, or the size of the firm necessarily, the way it once w certainly was. Mm. I think it's about the best ideas win and the best people win. And I, I've seen evidence of that for years where companies and clients are saying, I really like the way this team thinks or that idea is brilliant. Could you do this, that, and the other thing too? Mm. Um, I think that that is opening up tremendous opportunity for those smaller mid-size firms in particular who have been able to maybe connect with one client and now the next thing I know they're doing multiple um, things. And I think it's being driven because clients really at the end of the day don't want the same type of agency structure or, you know, team that they might have had, again, three, five, ten years ago, mm. which was a very top down, you know, the pyramid where there were a lot of people touching the business. Most of the companies I've worked with are really looking for a smaller, specialized team mm. that they can call upon and not 10 people that are showing up on a conference call necessarily. Mm. Um, and by the way, that's not just driven by budget, although that's a consideration. I, I think that there's a lot of clients that are struggling with the disruption we talked about, and they need senior thought partners who are helping them think through these things almost more than they need the execution. In, in many cases. So I think just looking at how agencies are structuring their teams, that's that's a big area that they're changing based on what the clients are asking for. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. We we talked a little bit about automation, AI and sort of Amazon's large shadow earlier. What what other trends are you seeing in marketing as we turn the corner into twenty twenty? It's around the corner. So the topics that are on everyone's mind, obviously digital disruption and mm -hmm. what that means. Mm -hmm. I think um, e-commerce is is a big area. And again, companies I wouldn't have even necessarily uh, or industries thought of, but everyone's kind of looking at that space. What do they do about that? Um, with the big A, Amazon, you know, at, at the head of that, um, talent for sure, in terms of how not just attracting the talent we were just talking about, retention of talent, what does that look like? Um, and a big area that I'm involved in at Waypoint is very much around when a company is growing, how best should they be growing? Is it about building capability? Is it about finding capacity? Is it about building and finding capital? And those are really, I think, big um, question marks that everyone has because there's so much disruption happening right now. If you then take everything going on like Brexit and the 2020 election and, and China and the uncertainty mm -hmm. that any company, frankly, is probably feeling right mm -hmm. now, there's a lot of um, uneasiness, I think, you know, would be uh, would be the way I'd put it, but also excitement at the mm -hmm. same time. It's it's not dread. It's excitement, but uneasiness. So companies are really, I think, grappling with all of these disruptions. What does that mean for my business and how do I structure and plan for that in a way that I'll be able to continue to grow? Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. I'm just going to pick some of these at random and Ooh, fire, okay. fire them at you. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. 
I have failed many times. Um, I think the red thread of my failures are similar to my learning that I mentioned earlier, which is when I tried to go it alone, when I thought I need to make this decision all by myself and um, I'll just forge ahead and do it without necessarily stopping and getting the right inputs along the way, that that was usually, if I look back, that was usually very much at play there. And it doesn't mean that you need to stop and get a group consensus on everything. Mm But you, there are moments where you need just a, a pause moment to check and say, do I Sense have all check. the right info, right? right? Um, that would be, I, that's the red thread that probably mm. um, comes across in, in most of the areas I would see as failure. Hmm. So relating to that then, tell us about some of your early mentors. Who guided or influenced your career and the way that you think about growing businesses and adding value to agencies? So I think of mentorship <laughs> a lot like therapy um, in that the, I think you need a, a mentor for different reasons at different stages in your life. Okay. And I mean that in terms of therapy because a lot of people, you know, if they are going through postpartum, they might seek out someone who can help them specifically, right, with that as a, as a personal challenge. Well, in professional world, mentorship when you're coming up the corporate ladder, for example, or when you're trying to establish yourself, you know, in a different way on a, on a leadership or trying to join a board. All of these are unique situations. And I think it's important to find mentors who've actually successfully navigated those hmm. situations as opposed to a wonderful, brilliant mentor right. who you just are interested in speaking to. And sure. so I've, oh, I've had many mentors, many whom probably don't even know they were my mentor. Okay. Um, so if you're watching this, you probably will figure that out. <laughs> and it was because they, I knew that they could help me with that, that particular challenge I was sure. facing at the moment in time. So I encourage people to look for mentors in that way. And it doesn't mean it's a forever situation. It might just be for that moment. The, the only other thing I think it's important to mention is, this goes back to diversity, Sometimes people find and seek out the people that they feel and look and seem most like. Sure. When you're looking for a mentor, that I think can sometimes almost work against you sure. too. And so I've always had male and female mentors. Mm -hmm. I've always had younger and older. Like that was a mm -hmm. deliberate decision on my part. And I, I would encourage other people to do the same when they're looking for mentors. Mm, diversity of thought again. Absolutely. So what do you do for fun when you're not growing businesses? That's, there's something other than that for fun. <laughs> that is your fun. <laughs> it's my fun. Um, I have two amazing kids and an mm. incredible husband mm. um, and a sometimes an okay dog. Um, <laughs> so I, when I'm having fun, it's usually, you know, in some some combination of with all of them. Um, I have in the last few years made more of a conscious effort, I think, you know, to focus on like many others, my health, my wellness, mental wellness, physical wellness, all of it. And so I, I actually make a point to spend more time outdoors, which is not always easy in New York City. Um, but if I can, I'm, you know, doing a conference call on the Brooklyn Bridge, literally, um, or, you know, going out for a hike on the weekend. So it, it clears my mind, and it makes me better in my day to day. And I 
younger me probably wouldn't have necessarily seen that as a priority, but I do now. You've just answered my next question. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? So thank you for that. There you go. Um, My favorite question, this is my personally favorite question. Uh, Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. So um, I actually just yesterday finished um, She Said, which I don't know if you're if you know it. It's uh, yeah, fantastic book. Um, It's by the two uh, women New York Times writers who broke the Harvey Weinstein sexual harassment story. Okay. Um, uh, in 2017, right. uh, and Jody Cantor and um, Megan Toohey. And it is a riveting account of all of what they went through, not only in their research phases and all the interviews and, and you know, information gathering, but then once they were ready to write the story, all the drama and machinations um, of, of getting to that point. And coming from a, a communications background, you know, I, it, that tapped into something, but it's such a fascinating take on life, how much things have changed. Mm. If you think about it, it's only two years ago, it's right? We're years. 2019. That is amazing. But it's amazing. It's, it's a great book. It's called She Said. So I just finished that. Yeah. Um, Jody Cantor and Megan. Jody Cantor and Megan to T-W-O-E-Y. The other book I just finished that I, again, a a true account, but speaks more broadly about what's happening in the world, um, Bad Blood, which is uh, also by a New York Times writer all about Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, the um, biotech blood company, and just an amazingly horrifying account of John Cheno. Uh, pe- what author. people want, to be- what people want to believe, yeah. and how easy people can be convinced of something that's just not there. Um, so it's just two books that I, I couldn't, you know, speak more more highly about. And they're both added to my list. Thank you very much yeah. for that. Um, awesome. Um, so, last couple of questions before we before we finish. In the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? So added, I think I mentioned just being a little bit more mindful of self-care um, and, uh, you know, even down to I, I make sure I get seven hours of sleep mm. and, you know, younger me again would have been like, who needs yeah. seven hours? Who needs yeah, sleep? Plenty. Right. Um, just for restoration and, right. and ideas. Um, mm. I find that I'm so much more creative when right. I when I've actually had that. So I've, I've added that. I'm um, removed. I think I've removed probably those individuals or, or, you know, entities in my, in my world, in my orbit that weren't adding anything to my life. And what I mean by that is, you know, a new idea or a listening ear, a, you know, a a recommendation on a book, you know, anything that wasn't really additive. Hmm. It's a lot of, um, when you stop and pause and look around, you can see there's a lot of people that take Hmm. And, you know, not always giving um, in, in, in the same way. And so making conscious effort, I think, to kind of say, I want to I want to tighten that a little. And the ones I'm going to keep in my orbit, I, I'm going to really put a lot of effort behind and I'm getting a lot back out of it. So that'd be removing, I guess. So a young person or a millennial comes up to you and asks you for some advice to get into the agency world or to get started in business. What advice do you give them? So I think, God, there's so many ways to answer that. But I think if I if I had that moment in an elevator with them, 
I would say look for the company that's going to give you the permission or you'll be able to take the permission where you can experiment. And that could mean in any way, shape and form, but it's going to give you more experience. It's going to give you and prepare you better for later in life. Again, with all the forces we've talked about, the speed to market, the need for innovation. It's amazing to me how many companies when a, you know, a a young and um, person earlier in their career is coming on board and they are put in that box, right, of you're going to do this and that's all you're going to do. I think there are a lot of environments, especially the entrepreneurial ones, where it's this might be what we need you to do, but what else can you do? And if they're really entrepreneurial, they'll seek out those opportunities that we talked about. So that's a really important thing to be looking for as much as the name and the salary and, you know, all of the other and the title and all the things that go with that. And my final question, Juliana, what is it you know about growing a business today that you wish you knew when you started at the beginning of your career? Uh, So you never stop growing. You're always growing in some way, shape and form. And that takes effort and that takes planning there. I think back, you know, when I started my career, it was OK. A company has reached X, you know, size or Y clients. Um, they are now, you know, they're established. Hmm. You're, you might be established. You're never and you Done. should never think of yourself as stopping growing. Right. And so that's that that growth mindset that everyone talks about, hmm. making sure that that is consciously pulled through the organization at any stage. I think that's something I've learned over the years. Quite fascinating. Juliana, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. We have been speaking with Juliana Richer. She is currently a partner at Waypoint Partners, a leading global growth and M&A advisory firm. I welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions. Email me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters.